Take a copy of God's Word. Let's go to the book of 1 Kings chapter 17 tonight. 1 Kings chapter 17. I'm going to read the text in a few moments. I want to kind of spend a few moments kind of introducing the text this evening. You know, this week, of course, Missions Conference is uh, really, uh, it's, it's really about, if I can say this, there, an end game of it, of course, is helping our hearts to, to grasp, once again, the Great Commission. But we are talking about money. We, we, we want to talk about money this week, and the fact is that there's an offering that we're, we're after to help perpetuate the gospel being preached across the face of the world. And so I've asked myself this question, and I suppose other people have as well, but I've asked myself this question. All right, God, you can do anything you want to. You're not limited. I mean, you, you own the cattle on a thousand hills. You own the wealth of every mind. You really don't need me to do anything. You don't need me to give my dollars. You don't need me to, to be a missionary. So why on earth, if God can do anything, why on earth does he ask us to be involved? Well, the answer simply is this, is that by being involved, we get to see the mighty hand of God work. The, the truth of the matter is God has always wanted glory. is worthy of. That brings great honor and glory to him. So God does something unique and special through our lives when we take what I call steps of obedience. God may call upon us as far as a people is concerned to, to sacrifice and, and, uh, and live in obedience to walk with God in faith. And when God stretches our faith, it makes us a little bit uncomfortable. You ever been uncomfortable and God asking you to do something and you say, Lord, I, that's just a little bit beyond me. We heard Frank talk about this building, you know, and, and, and here's a building. Okay, Lord, that's a little uncomfortable. That's a stretch. How on earth are we going to do this? And we're, we sometimes are, are stretched. We become a little bit uncomfortable. And yet when we respond in obedience, God then steps into the situation when he's guiding, when he's directing, he steps into that situation because we've obeyed and he does then something supernatural. And then we stand back in awe of that. And we can look and say, look what God has done. And we get to be a part of that. God didn't involve us in his great work in this world. It wouldn't help us to develop. It wouldn't help us to become stronger. God wants our faith to grow, and he desires to, that we see him, and we must believe and trust him. Now, the Bible clearly states, and you're familiar with this passage in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, where the Bible says, but without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Of course, one of the most precise ways we demonstrate our faith is in this matter of obedience in our giving. When we take something as tangible as the dollars and, and the money that comes into our lives because we work, because we labor, because we get some sort of uh, maybe, you know, whether it's retirement check or whatever, we're, we're talking about the income that comes into our, our, into our lives and, and something as necessary as our financial resources, and we take a portion of that and commit it to the work of God, uh, we're making a statement about what we value. You know, people spend money on all kinds of things. You know that, don't you? It's amazing to me what people spend to go to a sporting event. And they don't hardly think anything about it, but when we start talking about, okay, I'm going to give regularly to missions, I'm going to give on a systematic 
uh, way to missions, people kind of look at you a little cross and your neighbors would think you're crazy. But the truth of the matter is we're saying, here's what we value. We value this opportunity. Someone said, show me your budget and I'll show you what you worship. There's a great, great truth to that. How we spend our money really says, here's what's important to me. This is how I, what, I, what I value. This is how I'm going to spend my resources. Now, the passage we're going to look at tonight really isn't really specifically about money, but it certainly is about stretching someone's faith and, and of course, to make some decisions about trusting God. And God wants us to be challenged. I, I truly believe tonight God wants us to be challenged in this matter of our faith and trusting God for what he's going to ask of us to commit to this coming Sunday. Here we're going to find a story. It's a story about two people. There are more people involved in that, but primarily there are two people involved in this text. We find the prophet Elijah, a prophet who must walk with God and believe that God can take care of him in the midst of a very difficult situation and circumstance. And then we're introduced to a widow. Of all the people that God would say, I want to use to sustain and to encourage and to help a prophet, this would be the least likely person that any of us would choose. And yet God says, I'm going to choose to use this widow to do something unbelievably exciting. And so we're going to look at this picture. And I love this story and the picture that it paints for us. It's a very vivid picture that speaks to me about faith giving. Sometimes we think, well, you know, this idea of faith giving, that's just a New Testament concept. It is not a New Testament concept. Faith is found throughout the pages of the Bible, beginning of the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. It is a, it is a Bible concept. So we want to look at this story tonight, and I want, to, I want you to see some things. We're going to take your copy of God's Word, and would you join me here tonight? And uh, we're going to begin reading in verse number 8. We're going to read down to uh, verse number uh, 16, all right? That's where we're going to be, but we're going to look at some other verses in this chapter. So notice what the Bible says in verse number 8. And the Bible says, And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Arise and get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth unto Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. So he, the he there, of course, is that reference to Elijah. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came into the gate of the city, behold, the widow woman was there gathering of sticks. And he called to her and said, Fetch me, I pray thee, a little water, in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to fetch it, he called to her and said, Bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thy hand. And she said, As the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake, but a handful of meal in a barrel, a little oil in a cruise. And behold, I am gathering two sticks that I may go in and dress it for me and for my son that we may eat it. What does the Bible say? And die. Doesn't have much, does she? It's pretty bleak. It's pretty empty cupboard here. We're going to eat it and die. Look at verse 13. And Elijah said unto her, Don't you love when God says this through someone? Fear not. Fear not. Go and do as thou hast said. But make me thereof a little cake, notice the word, first. Make me a little cake thereof first, 
and bring it to me, and after make for thee and for thy son. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, the barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruise of oil fail until the day the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. And she went and did according to the saying of Elijah, and she and he and her house did eat many days, and the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail according to the word of the Lord which he spake by Elijah. Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for this service, and we thank you for this conference this week, and it has been thrilling, Lord, to be back home and to be able to preach and to encourage the church family here and to meet these missionaries that you've brought together. Many of them, of course, are familiar to us, but the new ones that are here, and we're thankful, Lord, just for your work of grace in all of our lives. Now, Lord, I have no doubt you've impressed upon my heart to preach this message tonight, and I pray that you'd help me with it. God, I need your divine unction. I need liberty, Lord, to speak tonight, so help me to have that liberty. Lord, would you draw our attention? May the Spirit of the living God stir in us tonight, all of us, as we hear from you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we're going to think about this idea of this idea of faith giving, for, for, for us to be involved in this idea of faith giving, we're, 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 I want you to notice some things in this text. And uh, the first thought that I'm going to give you is found really in verses 1 through 9. And here's what I want us to understand. God wants us to be involved in his work when there are some legitimate needs that need to be met. So let me say that again. God wants us, he wants you and me to be involved in his work when there are legitimate needs that are literally legitimate, that need to be met. And, and so this begins really in verses 1 through 8, and I'm not going to read these verses. You may be familiar with them, but it really begins as God calls upon this man Elijah. And I'm amazed about this man Elijah because really we don't really have a lot of background about him. We just basically have just a statement that Elijah was, the Tishbite, was called by God to go and stand before Ahab and point his finger at him and said, hey, there's not going to be any do or rain except by my words. And he turned around and walked out of the out of the palace. Now again, uh, there's no pedigree here other than just this, this is Elijah the Tishbite. We don't have this long genealogy where he came from. We don't know who is, we we really don't know much about him, but he's almost like he just shows up out of nowhere because God needs a man to go and do a job. And so God calls him and he goes and and he does what God says for him to do. He says, okay, no dew or rain except by my words. Now you have to understand, the moment he says that, that means the rain is going to stop. There isn't going to be any dew. There, you know, we, we get up, and, and of course, we live here in northeast Ohio, and we're, we're used to white stuff falling from the sky a lot. Even in April and sometimes May. I hope not this year. But, but we're used to precipitation. And, you know, in the summer, we get our rains. And, and of course, there are even times when it doesn't rain. And it's the, the moisture is in the air, and you get up in the morning, the grass is wet. So, so we call that dew. So he says, hey, no dew or rain until I speak again. And he walks out, and he doesn't come back for three and a half years. That's what the Bible teaches. There's no rain, no dew for three and a half years. And God says, okay, now I'm going to send you down to the brook Cherith, and I'm going to sustain you there. And the Bible tells us in these verses that God sends uh, to this man, as he's sitting there by the brook, he's going to drink of the brook, but he's going to send ravens in the morning and in the evening. Some of you folks may have used this service before. It's called DoorDash in Uber Eats. Now, I've never used either one of them, but God had his own delivery service, didn't he? 
He had the ravens that brought this man bread and flesh in the morning and bread and flesh in the evening, and they delivered it to the man of God. But because of the, the sentence that God has given, even the man of God is not, he's not excluded from suffering some of the consequences of this judgment upon the nation of Israel. Because the Bible tells us in this passage that after a while, the brook dried up. And God said, all right now, Elijah, I'm not going to leave you. I've given you something to do, so I'm not going to leave you, so I'm going to send you down to Zarephath in Zidon. Now, help, let me help you understand, Zarephath in Zidon was not in Israel. God is sending him down to the place where Jezebel is from. This is her home territory. This is not exactly where you'd expect there'd be someone who loved God and would worship God and, and would be a follower of God who'd want to help in the sustaining of a man of God. But God said, I'm going to send you there to this widow woman. I've commanded, listen, God said he commanded her to sustain him. Now, I would say to you tonight, as we think about that, there's a legitimate need in this man's life, isn't there? So here's the legitimate need. God says, all right, you've got a job to do. You go tell him there's going to be no do or rain until you speak again, which tells me that this man has to live long enough to go back and confront the king. Would you agree with me tonight when I say that? That's a legitimate need. He's got a ministry to perform. He's got to live long enough to see that through. Which means that whatever his needs would be up until that point, and as long as God kept him there and he was doing the will of God, whatever he needed were legitimate things. So God asks us to be involved in his work when there are legitimate needs of things that need to be taken care of. So again, I'm telling you that this man of God had this legitimate need. And it's important for us to realize that there's a, a decision that, that we make oftentimes because as we think about the people of God, uh, the story, again, is, is very important that we get a hold of it to understand that God is at work here. So whether we're talking about the legitimate needs of Elijah or we're talking about the legitimate needs of a church like this, I pastor the Cleveland Baptist Church. I often tell this story that, you know, when I was the associate pastor here, I really didn't think too much about the finance. And I, I, I was concerned because I was a giver. I was involved in tithes and giving to missions. But I, I wasn't concerned about the electric bill. That wasn't my responsibility. I worked for a man who had that responsibility. And so, you know, when the electric bill came in, I didn't say, well, let me see the envelope. How much is it? You know when I became concerned about that? On September the 3rd, 1995, the last day that Pastor Thompson was the pastor, and all of a sudden, that responsibility dawns on me. You know who's now responsible? I know God is ultimately responsible, but humanly speaking, the buck stopped in that office. And so when the secretary brought me in the first electric bill, and I looked at it, and it had a one and a zero, followed by many more zeros, and I said to her, I said, is this for a month? And she said, yep. I said, you mean to tell me we have to meet this responsibility every month? And she said, sometimes it's worse. It was $10,000. And you know, I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, I'm sure that the electric company, they understand that we're a 501c3. We're a nonprofit. We're doing charitable work. I'm sure that if we didn't pay it one month, they wouldn't care. Oh, yeah, right? No, no, it was a legitimate need. And so uh, we had buses sitting on the parking lot. And, and every time one of those broke down, you know, your car breaks down, it may cost you, you know, what, 
today may be anything, but, but you know, back in that day, you know, your car broke down, it was 150 bucks to fix it. Here it was $500. And to change the oil, you know, in my car it was like $20. To change the oil in a bus, it was like $75. And we had all these buses out in the parking lot. We had this staff to take care of it. And, and I honestly, I've said this before, when I became the pastor, I did not sleep well for the first month. Because I thought, man, I am not Roy Thompson. Will these people come back to church? And most importantly, will they bring their money? But the truth of the matter is, is that, honestly, these were our legitimate needs. Look, if your pastor stands up before you one day and says, you know, God spoke to me last night, and I need a $60 million airplane. That's not a legitimate need. But when he stands before you and says, hey, there's a step of faith, and we've talked to the leadership of the church, we've prayed about it, we believe this is God's plan, that it's a legitimate need, whether it's the light bill or taking care of the staff or, or buying another bus or, or adding to the property or, or, or taking on another mystery. Those are legitimate needs, and God says God's people need to be involved in that. So it begins by understanding these are legitimate needs. So would you notice the second thing as we find in this text? God blesses the individual or individuals, individual or individuals that hear and obey his voice. We find in verses 9 through 11, we see in the text that Elijah heard the voice of God giving him a clear direction. Okay, it's time to leave uh, Cherith. The brook is no longer flowing. And here's what I want you to do. I'm sending you down to a place called Zarephath. Now Elijah, think about this. God said to him, Elijah, I, I've commanded... I've commanded a widow woman there to sustain me. Now, I don't know if you think about that, because we, we read these stories, you know, and we don't really, we've lived them, we've thought about them, we've heard people preach about them. But man, when you stop to really contemplate what God just said to Elijah, that's, it's humbling. The men that are in this room understand when I say this, that as a man, as specifically as men, we have a responsibility to take care of others, right? Amen. I married my wife. We were in Bible college. We didn't have a lot of money. We thought we were rich. It's just the two of us until kids started coming along. But I've always thought that it was my responsibility to provide the, the bulk of, of our care and you know, my wife has worked off and on throughout the years of our marriage, but primarily I was the chief breadwinner in our family, and I've always thought that. You know, I, I just have to tell you that for a man to have to say, okay, I'm going to have to be taken care of by a woman, let alone a widow woman, that's a little bit humbling. But Elijah had to submit himself to the will of God. This widow had to hear God and respond in faith to do what she was instructed. It wasn't easy for her either. Can I tell you there are times when God will step into our lives and he'll say to us, hey, look, there's something that I want you to do. And it's not always easy, but God bless the person that hears the voice of God and responds. Most of you who have been around here long enough and I know that we've got a lot of newer people in the church, so I, I, I may belabor this just a little bit because a lot of folks here would be familiar. But when I was a boy growing up, my dad was a car guy. And uh, he just loved cars. I mean, that was just his thing. And he was good with his hands. He was mechanical. And I remember I was about six or seven years old. My dad wasn't working at the church at that point. He was a truck driver. And 
he'd drive his truck out of town. He'd go out towards Illyria and out that way, out to the, to the west of town and make his deliveries. And then he'd come back. And one night, and he came back, he said to my mother, Nancy, I bought a car today. Now, I'm sure my mother was probably used to that at this point because my dad was always buying cars. But this was a different kind of car. This was a classic automobile. He bought that day in 1932 Auburn. Now, if you don't know anything about classic cars, go home and Google it. I say this to people all the time. Go home and Google it. All of us remember, if we're old enough, we've seen those old movies where you have Al Capone driving in the classic automobile. It's got the swooping fenders, the big white wall tires. Well, my dad bought a car like that, but it didn't look like that. When he bought it, it really was, it looked like it was solid. It didn't have rust. Somebody had spent a, a little bit of time, and they had already rebuilt the engine and the transmission, but I got to tell you, the rest of the car needed work. Every bit of the chrome on it was pitted. It, it, the, 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 the wheels, uh, I mean, they, they were just looked like, you know, I mean, they, they, they looked like they, this was 19, in the 1970s. The car was 40 years old. The, the, the wheels looked like 40 years old. It had a cloth top that had peeled back on it, and the springs and the seats had come through, and all the, all the carpet on the floor was worn through, and and my dad brought that car home, and boy, he was proud. Look what I bought. And I'm not sure what my mother thought, but she's thinking, you spent money on this? And that car sat in the garage for a long time. Because my dad was raising kids, he didn't have money to put in a car, and so he just, he let it sit there for a long time, and at a point, my dad came into some money, and so he began the process of restoring the Auburn. And it was a work and labor of love for him. He loved that car. And I still remember going to the, uh, out to Olmstead Falls, and there was an upholstery shop out there, and he picked out the, the cloth for the top, and he picked out the cloth for the seats, and he picked out the, the, the fabric for the, for the carpet. And, and, and I remember him taking out there and then redoing the seats, and man, when it came back, it looked like it was brand new on the, uh, on the outside. And, and I remember when he sent it away to be painted, and it came back, and it looked, man, it was, it was an awesome-looking car. And, and they painted the wheels, but it still had these big old black tires on it. And looked, they looked out of place. You know, you don't just go and buy those big white wall tires for a car like that. Those had to be special ordered. And so they special ordered them. And I remember when they brought it in and they put those wheels on it and he brought that car home. And I'm telling you, every time you pull up to a stop sign or up to a traffic light, people's, their jaw dropped to the bottom of their, 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 to their stomach almost like, wow, I've never seen a car like this. So my dad had that car when I was a boy probably finished it when I was about eighth or ninth grade, had it all the way through high school, had it all the way through I was in college, had it all the way as, as I was back here on the staff for several years. And in the 1980s, if some of you may remember, we were in a project because the parking lot about to the front of the bus garage out there, it was paved, but everything beyond that was cinder. We were needing to do something with that parking lot and we had backfilled and backfilled and it needed to be paved and it needed to have some some uh, catch basins put in it for the runoff of the water. Well, I got to tell you, for a church our size, of course, we're heavily involved. This church has never had money. We've never had anybody with deep pockets. So it's like, okay, we got to do this project. Let's all dig in. Now, probably most people in this room don't know this, but about that time, my dad felt led to sell the Auburn. And he did. And he took a good chunk of that change and put it into an offering so that we could have a parking lot to park cars on. And I have to tell you that not many people knew about that, but I knew about it. 
And I was just a young man who was raising kids, had hardly two nickels to rub together. And I knew how much, how much that car meant to my dad. But it impressed me that he heard the voice of God and was willing to say, all right, God, if that's what you want, as much as I love this, I love you more. And I'll make this offering. I want to encourage you tonight to understand God may prompt you to do something, and when you hear the voice of God to do it, you need to follow. Would you notice a third thing here? God blesses the person that surrenders what they have, as little as it may seem. Look at verse number 12 of our text, please. The Bible says, And, and she said, As the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake, but a handful of meal in a barrel, and a little oil in the cruise. I want you to notice, again, this widow woman. I'm going to paint some pictures here tonight, if I may, because we read these stories and we read them, but we don't really visually interpret them. So I want you to understand, the Bible is clear here when the Bible says to this widow woman, God told Elijah, said, I've commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. So how God did that to this widow woman, I don't know. I don't think he, the, the Bible doesn't tell us that he sent the angel of the Lord to this woman saying, okay, there's going to come a man here before too long and you've got a responsibility. I'm, I'm God's angel and I'm telling you, you've got to help him. The Bible doesn't tell us that, but it's clear, it's clear, isn't it, that she knew that she was commanded by God to help him. Amen. So here comes the man of God. The Bible is, again, very obvious in the text when he shows up. That widow woman is there, and God says, that's her, and I'm sure that God said to the widow woman, that's him. So she says, okay, this is the guy God has expect, expects me to, to help. I wonder what he's going to ask me. So here comes Elijah, and sees this widow woman, and here's what he says to her. Hey, I'm thirsty. Can you get me a drink of water? Now, i got to tell you that probably to her at that point, she's going, because there's a well over there and plenty of water as far as I know. Even though it's a drought, there's still water. I can go get him a drink of water. And as she's going to get a drink of water, he says, um, I'm hungry. Make me a little cake. What did you just say? Make me a little cake. And she says to him, you don't understand. I don't have a cake. I do have a little bit of meal in a barrel, and I have a little oil in a cruise. That's all I've got. What you saw me doing as you showed up, I was gathering two sticks because I was going to go put that cake together, and I was going to bake it for me and my son, and we were going to eat it and then we're going to die. Now, most of us here, here's what we do. We say, okay, I understand. I won't trouble you anymore. Because you don't have anything. Let me time out for just a moment. God never excludes anybody from giving because they don't have much. He doesn't. You may be sitting here and say, of all the people in this auditorium, I have the least amount of money of anyone. I know what that feels like. There were times when my wife and I were in Bible college that, honestly, I didn't know. 
mean, we had, we had enough money to pay our bills, but we'd go by the A&W root beer stand. They'd have a sign out there, hot dogs, 25 cents. And I'd look at her and I'd say, honey, do we have an extra 25 cents? She said, no, we don't. Now, I've got to tell you that in the midst of a, a time like that, at Bible college, and I was working a part-time job, and she was working some at the hospital, and I, we had a baby coming along. We never one time ever thought, we're not tithing this week. Amen. We're not putting our mission offering in. This. We never one time thought that. Because God doesn't exclude anybody from giving because they don't think they have much. I want you to see in this story that this woman who the Bible says doesn't have much, Elijah doesn't excuse her. He says, um, I just heard what you said. You got a little meal in a barrel and a little oil on a cruise? Well, I got a message from you from God. Fear not. You don't have to be afraid. But here's what I do need you to do. I need you to go in that kitchen. I need you to make me a little cake. Listen to what he says, first. Now, doesn't that seem a little bit bold? Does it seem a little bit obnoxious almost? You mean I'm supposed to feed you before I feed myself and my son? Yep. Did you hear what I said? God said, don't fear. If you obey him, then you can go back in that kitchen and make for you and your son. And he's also spoken that if you do what you're supposed to do, you're not gonna have to worry until the drought is over with. Now, now ladies, I wanna, I wanna help you understand something here for just a moment, because you gotta put yourself in this picture. You ladies know what it is to have children and that they're hungry. Kids are always hungry, right? Man, we were raising three boys. I'm telling you, we couldn't keep milk in the house. We couldn't keep bread in the house. We couldn't keep anything in the house. They were eating us out of house and home. Every time I turned around, Denise said, I'm going to Mark's. I'm thinking they might as well put a revolving door in that place because that's all we do. We go in one door and out the other, you know. But, but I was like, I, I understand. And, you know, there, there are times when, when, you know, my wife will say, we need to go to the grocery store. And I'm home, some, and my mother will say to me, can you take me to the grocery store? So I'm now the guy who takes my mom to the grocery store. I'm glad to do that. But the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, if I go down to the basement, my mom's got stuff in her pantry. And she's got stuff in her freezer. And I go out in our garage, and we've got a freezer that's got stuff in it. We've got a pantry, or we've got shelves out in the garage. We've got all kinds of non-perishable stuff in it. We've got stuff every place. I'm thinking to myself, we've got to go to the grocery? Got all this stuff here, we've got to go to the grocery? So the grandkids come over, you know, and, well, we got stuff in the freezer. Let's pull it out. We can make the kids something, whatever they want. We'll just throw it in. Let's go get the pizza. We can do that. Now put yourself in this story, ladies. There's nothing in the freezer. There's nothing in the refrigerator. There's nothing on the shelves. She's got a little oil. And she's got a little bit of meal. That's all she's got. And she's got a little, a, a, a son. That's what the Bible says. I don't know how old he is. 
But no doubt that boy's hungry. Now she's got a choice to make, doesn't she? Okay, I can make for the preacher or I can make for me and my son. That's my choice. So now she's uncomfortable. Now her faith is being stretched. Now she has a decision to make. So I want you to see with me in this picture. Watch as she goes into the kitchen. She gets that meal out. She dumps it on the counter. She gets that oil. She makes the cake. She bakes it. We were just talking. I was in the, up in the office this morning, and Brother Roger and I were talking about donuts. Nothing better than a fresh, hot donut, is there? So think about this woman. She's just made this cake. It's fresh, and it's hot. Now, I don't know where that little boy is. I'm sure that maybe she's put him out, uh, away. Son, go occupy yourself. But she's got that fresh cake in her hands. What am I going to do with it? How hard must it have been for her to walk over and hand it to the man of God? But she did. Now understand, when she emptied that, that was all that was in the canister. That was all that was in the cruise. I mean, it was done. There wasn't anything else in it. But she hands it to the man of God, and he says to her, okay, you can go back into the kitchen and make one for you and your son now. What? I was just in the kitchen. I'm telling you that that canister was empty, so was the cruise of all. There wasn't anything in it. He said, go back in the kitchen and you can make yourself one. Well, this seems futile. But back in the kitchen she goes and she looks in that canister and sure enough, there's some meal in that canister again and there's some more oil in that cruise. Now listen, listen to me. I don't believe it ever filled to the top. I don't believe it ever filled up. I think every day she had to go through this process, every day. Because God stretches our faith. And we have to exercise faith. We have to believe God. And I'm thinking to myself, every day, she made that man of God a cake, and she made her and her son a cake, and they did eat, the Bible says, until God set rain upon the earth. Now, as interesting as that is, think about this. What would have happened had she said, I'm not doing it? just not going to do it. It's too hard. You're asking too much. Well, I'll tell you what would have happened. She and her son would have eaten one cake and they would, probably would have died. But because she believed God, God then was able and obligated to take care of her. Did you listen to what I said? Because she believed God, God was then obligated and committed to taking care of her. Now, I don't know what God is going to say to you about this offering this coming week. Some of us, he may stretch. You say, I don't know how I'm going to do that. Because we're living in days when the gasoline is through the roof. And it could go higher. And we're living in times in which they're talking about recession and inflation. And the numbers are crazy. Can I tell you, if you believe God and you trust God and he tells you what to do and you follow in obedience, he is committed in, to taking care of you through a recession? Because that's the kind of God we serve. Faith giving is not something new. It's something that God obviously asks of us all through our life. 
I'm going to conclude with a personal illustration. My wife and I were young in the ministry here at the Cleveland Baptist Church, and some of you go back to those days as we were just young in the ministry, and we got a Bible college. Interest rates back in the 19, late 1970s, early 1980s, they were 14, 15% for home loans. You think they're high now? 14, 15% to get a mortgage. Here we are in the college, or in, out of college, we're working in the ministry, and Denise and I, we're, we're doing everything we know what to do. We've got three little kids. We're living on a shoestring here on, in, the, in the ministry. And, I mean, we just we didn't have a lot of money. In 1982, the Lord allowed us to start the, what's now the Couples for Christ class that has been going on since, I guess, 1982. And so we started teaching young couples and preaching to them. And, of course, we talked to them about faith promise giving and it was wonderful to see that class grow and people grow in faith and people get a hold of some concepts. We're rent, living in a rental property over here on Bidoff Road and, and um, you know, all of a sudden the interest rates start, start dropping a little bit. They're dropping. They're, they're drastic drops. They're going from 15 down to 13%. Sunday morning I'd walk into my class and here come some young couples in and they'd say, hey, this week we signed a contract on a house. And I'm, honestly, I was happy for them, but I was also kind of mad. I'm thinking, well, yeah, I'm glad for you, but there is no way in this world that I'm ever going to be able to buy a house in this, in this area. I mean, back in those days, you could buy a fairly decent house for about forty dollars to $45,000. Don't you wish you could do that today? But that, that forty dollars to $45,000 seemed like a million dollars to me at that point. And I'm thinking to myself, there is no way in this world we're ever going to be able to, to, to buy a house. I mean, these interest rates are crazy. We don't, I, can't, I can't save up a down payment. All I can do is pay my rent from month to month. I got these kids to take care of, all these kids to take care of, you know. Eat me out of house and home. Pete. <laughs> I'm thinking, there's no way we're ever going to be able to buy a house. So one day, I'm talking to the Lord. I said, God, you know, it's not fair. It's not fair that, you know, here we are, we're giving to missions, we're, 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 we're faithful, that, you know, honestly, I feel like we're stretching ourselves to give to missions, and, and, and I said, you know, and then I got these people coming in that we're teaching in this class, and they're talking to me about buying a house, and I said, you know, I don't, just think, that, I don't think that's fair. You know, God doesn't speak audibly, but he does speak. And here's what God said to me. Well, son, you haven't even asked me for one. I said, okay, I get it. I'm asking. 30 days later, a man walked up to me in this church and said, you know, my mom, she's moving to Florida. And she's got a house she needs to sell. You don't want anybody looking for a house. You don't want to buy a house, do you? And I said, I sure would like to, but I don't have any money. And he said, who said you need money? Well, that's the kind of deal I like. I said, I'm interested. I bought my first house on a land contract. No money down. My rent payment went up by $100 a month, and that $100 was going every month towards a down payment to that house. 
In the three years that we did that arrangement, we had locked in a price, the house went up in value, the interest rates dropped, and I was finally able to get a, a conventional FHA mortgage on that house. And we lived there for 10 years and we doubled our money. I'm here to tell you there's a God in heaven. If we trust him, can do much more than this. I'm not saying everybody in this room who doesn't have a house, all you have to do is rub the side of the bottle and Jeannie pops out and gives you a, a house. But I am here to tell you that when you believe God and you trust God and you follow God, he can do anything he wants to do. But you've got to honor him first. Let's bow our heads together in prayer tonight. Faith giving. starts as we believe God for some things. There's a legitimate need. Can I ask you, is there a legitimate need tonight in sending missionaries across the face of the world with the gospel? There sure is. There's a legitimate need in planting more churches in Northeast Ohio. There sure is. Is there a legitimate need of feeding some hungry kids over in Romania? There sure is. And God expects us to be a part of it. God will bless those who are obedient to him. And when we surrender what little bit we have, no matter how much it seems, God is able to take that and do so much more. Maybe tonight your faith is weak. Maybe you've never been involved in this thing called faith giving, faith promise giving. Can I challenge you tonight to just between now and Sunday really seek the Lord and say, God, I, I want to have faith. I want to believe you. But my faith is weak. I'm looking at what's happening in our culture and our economy, and I don't know what I, what, how, I can, how we're going to make it, let alone if we start doing something besides that. Can I tell you there's a God in heaven who can do so much more than this? I'm thinking to myself that this widow had not obeyed. What a difference it would have made. But because she did, God blessed in so many ways. You know, it really starts with our heart, doesn't it? It starts with a heart that's obedient to the Lord, wanting to please God, to be in awe of him. We said last night, you'll never see God do something special until you get into some deep waters. Out there where the waters run deep. I don't know what God may be dealing in your heart about this week, how he may be stirring in you about something. Maybe some young couple here, God is going to stir you to take a step of faith that's way beyond you. Maybe a teenage boy or teenage girl here that God stirs this week about surrender. Seems so uncomfortable. Seems like it's a stretch. And yet that's what God does. Sometimes he takes us and stretches us, but we know this is what he wants us to do then we face the decision like this widow woman did. Can I encourage you tonight to follow God? Follow him.